Good morning, everyone. I wanted to say it was nice to see all your smiling faces, too. But I can't see any of them, just like Sharon said. But I'm going to assume you are smiling, and you're happy to see each other, and you're happy that it's Sabbath. It's been a difficult week, slash year, slash month, you know. Some of my classmates and I, we were talking about it, but, you know, I'd like to invite you this morning to let all that just fade away. We are in God's house on God's day. God's in command. None of you need to worry. You need to enjoy our day with God, a day God gave us. Bask in his love and just receive his strength. Let's start with prayer. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning to be fed, to be blessed, because we crave your presence and your spirit. I could stand here and list all of my problems. I could list the problems of my friends, all of our problems as a country or as a church, but I don't need to. You know what they are, and you have each of these situations firmly at hand. I'm not worthy to stand before you, and I'm certainly not worthy to stand in front of these, your children, your family, and hold their attention for a few moments on your holy day. I'm just a humble sheet of paper, Lord. I pray that you will use this sheet of paper to communicate to your family words of encouragement, words of inspiration, words of comfort and hope. Mercy drops around us are falling, but for the showers we plead. You have promised, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this morning we'd like to cash that check. In your precious and holy name, amen. The title of the message this morning, well, let me back up just a little bit. A couple weeks ago, Sharon asked me to deliver the message, and that's a terrifying prospect if she's ever came up to any of you guys and asked. Just goes to show you that she was scraping the bottom of the barrel when she came to me. <laughs> but my first thought was, oh, what am I going to teach? What am I going to talk about? Because I, I love sharing God. It's easy to talk about the subject matter when you love God. When you love the subject matter, it just the challenge is finding what to talk about because there's so much to talk about creating a, a coherent thought and structure was the challenge for me because I'd choose a theme, I'd dig into it, and it would lead into another theme. <laughs> and that theme would lead to another theme. And so uh, reining that in and finding one thing to talk about of God's great love was a challenge for me. So I decided to take on a light subject, something easy, something easy for me, something easy to share with you guys. And that's the meaning of life. I've entitled my message this morning, Channels of Light. In the context of the meaning of life, channels of light, but the meaning of life, why am I here? Why are you here? When I say, why am I here? I'm anticipating you to be asking that in your own head, in your own heart. Why am I here? We've all grappled with this. What is my purpose? This is the big question, right? This is the big question that have stumped philosophers since there were philosophers. If you don't believe in God, you either don't know what the meaning of life is, or you say, there is no meaning of life. Okay, for the sake of conversation, let's say, okay. It's random chance. We all are just randomly here, and I have friends I'll talk to, and they're very, very intelligent, and they'll say, well, you know, you can't even approve you're real. Maybe you're a figment of my imagination. So if we take that math problem of logic, that argument, we work it backwards, okay, maybe I, I'm not really here. Maybe you're all a figment of my imagination. Do you guys believe that's true? Do you think we're all in the matrix? We're plugged in? See, these are, we don't think about these things very often, but it truly is a foundation of our lives and everything we think about, everything we know, everything we love. So we don't often go all ba back to the root. Why am I here? That's... Question two of the three big questions in life, right? You guys know what the three big questions are? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? These are the big questions in life. Secular humanists will say, life is meaningless. meaningless. Death is inevitable. Do you guys believe that? No, I don't believe that. Isaiah 22, 13 says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Secular humanism, that's what that has to offer. Okay, I'm not disparaging their, their belief. I wouldn't disparage anyone's beliefs. That doesn't sound right to me, though, to me personally, my beliefs. Because you guys all know we choose what we believe. We make a conscious choice. In the Amish communities, they have what's called Romspringer. You guys know what that is? 
in Amish communities, they're usually closed. They're very religious. They're very strict. But when their teens re reach a certain age in some of their ordinance, they let them go out into the world so they can make their own choice. Because think about it, if you've only ever seen your way of life and the narrative of your family, the narrative of your culture, that's not really much of a choice, is it? Much the way God gives us a choice. We talked about that this morning in class. Satan w was given a political lobbying table in the Garden of Eden, and he was able to voice his narrative on what was going on. And you could choose what narrative you wanted to believe. God's narrative was, I love you. You have a great purpose. <laughs> Satan's narrative was, God's repressing you. You are too a God. You could be just like him. That was his narrative. But that doesn't sound right to me. If it doesn't sound right to you, it's because at the core of all of us, we all know that we have a purpose. That, more than anything, is something we know. The very fibers of us, we know there's, there's purpose, there's reason. We look in the environment we're in, we look in the universe we're in, every, absolutely, absolutely everything has a purpose. And nothing in nature serves itself. It contributes to the community around it. You can't find one example in nature of something that doesn't serve something else, a purpose. And I think that seems foreign to a lot of us because as humans, we're selfish. The idea of living to serve seems outrageous. We kind of get this imagery of the dark ages where the peasants existed for the sake of the higher classes. So we, with that imagery in mind, we think that can't be my purpose. Serving can't be my purpose. So what is my purpose? What's your purpose? Of course, as Christi Christians, you know the answers to question one and two. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Right? Everyone here knows that. You've read scripture. You were created by a loving God. And he didn't just speak you into existence. You were created with such purpose. He, he stooped down, the God of the universe, our creator, our loving God, stooped down and formed us with his hands like an artist. You know what art is? Art is the conscious arrangement of objects in order to invoke an emotional response. So our loving God created art when he created us. He spoke the animals into existence. He spoke the planets into existence. Our universe, our galaxy, the supermassive black hole at the center that's 10 billion times the density of our sun holding our galaxy together. He created that with a word, but not you and not me. He created humans with his hands. That kind of implies a purpose, doesn't it? Not just love, but it implies a purpose. But what is that purpose? Turn with me to Genesis 1. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way. I opted not to do the media, and I'm going to say it's because I wanted to uh, do it on principle, but really I just couldn't figure it out. But I figured, you know what? The apostles did it. Spurgeon did it. And they saved countless souls. Genesis 1, 27. Let's start digging in to try and understand our purpose. And you guys might think you know where this is going. Maybe, but bear with me. Maybe not. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's go on to verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Hmm. Do you guys see purpose in there? Do you see function? Yeah? That might seem strange to you that this seems to be our function. God says, okay, Adam, here you exist, God. And Adam, of course, he was fully developed. He could speak. He could walk. He wasn't an infant. He said, oh, who are you? I'm God great. Who am I? You're Adam. You're my son. He's like, great. What do I do now? <laughs> what do I do now? Well, son, I created you for a purpose. And I love the loving language we read in verse 7. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. You read uh, earlier in the text, and God said, let us make man in our, our own image. And I love that, that language that's used. That is God starting a family. Do you guys pick that up? Let's have kids, is basically what that's saying. And that's represented somewhat in the relationship between man and a woman. We, we do that. It takes two of us. In the Godhead, there's three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
so I'm not exactly sure how that works, but I recognize that language. Let's make man in our image. Let's start a family. Why does anyone want to start a family? Asking rhetorical questions is difficult for me because I'm a teacher. I'm used to hearing you guys say it back. <laughs> Why does anyone want a family? You want to share your love, right? Love cannot go one way. Love has to be, by its very na nature, reciprocated. So God's saying, let's make a family. So God made them out of love. He made us. And now we're starting to see a little bit of the purpose for what, what we were created. And you might think, well, that's not a very big deal. The purpose he gave to us, he's like, all right, I want you to then start a family. I want you to subdue the earth, okay? I want you to have dominion over the animals. You're like, okay, right on. Why couldn't you have just created the earth already subdued? Right? Why do the animals need guidance? Why do they need to be governed? Do you think Adam asked God these questions? I doubt very much. I think he was happy to have something to do. He's like, great, because by our very natures, we are, we are in many ways like God because God said himself, let us make man in our image. We have a lot of the characteristics that God has. And God is always doing something. He's always busy. He's always active. He's, he's upholding everything he's made. He's animating everything. Your heart's beating right now because he's doing that. There's no other reason why that would be going on. He's, <laughs> our earth is spinning. He's doing that. It's going around the sun. He's doing that. Our solar system is going around the center of our galaxy. He's doing that. And there are countless galaxies out there. We can't even fathom it. I heard the other day, it was very interesting. We think we kind of have somewhat of a grasp on the contents of the universe as far as the quantity of galaxies and stars. And I love astronomy. Astronomy is very interesting to me. So did you know you can rent the Hubble t telescope? Different colleges put in to rent it so they can do different studies. Well, not that long ago, one of the colleges rented it for a couple weeks, which is very expensive. And they pointed it at an empty area of space out of curiosity. They said, you know what? According to our mapping, there's nothing there. That's very interesting. Let's, let's make sure. So they opened the shutter for a very long time. It was a couple weeks. And you know what they found? <laughs> it was so densely packed with stars and galaxies, they couldn't count them. So even with all the imaging and the mapping we've done of our universe, we can only see what we can see. It goes beyond that, probably infinitely for all I know. But God is upholding all of that. So God is always busy. He's always busy. So it makes sense that when he created us, he'd give us something to do, right? Would you all be happy if you had absolutely nothing to do? Don't raise your hands. I think some people right now would be like, oh, that would be wonderful. But I guarantee you, after a couple of days, you'd be, you'd be going crazy. <laughs> so we're starting to get a view of, of God's purpose originally intended for man. Okay? This is very interesting. Part of that, I think, was, in the book of Job touches on it, it kind of paints this picture. You all remember the story in the beginning of Job where it says the sons of God came together and Satan came representing the earth. And then Jesus says, well, what are you doing here? And now the image Scripture is portraying is it's kind of, it's a meeting, almost like a business meeting where everyone came from far and wide to sit down with God. Maybe have, you know, a family meal if you want to put it in language that we understand we're common to. And Satan comes in. He's like, what are you doing here? He says, oh, I'm the representative of earth heavily implying everyone else was representative of somewhere else, right? So they're coming together for a kind of a, well, again, like I said, business meeting, but a update. How's everything going, you know? And to me, that, again, going back to the family imagery, it really reminds me of my family. Whenever we get a chance, when I used to live closer, we'd get together almost every Sabbath, and my mom and my dad would sit there in great joy hearing each of their kids tell about their week, what's going on, how are your kids doing, and so forth. So I kind of get that vision in my mind when we read that in Job. And God says, what are you doing here? You decided to leave the family. What are you doing here? So obviously, he was taking the place of Adam. Adam would have been at that meeting. So part of Adam's function, because we're talking about the purpose of life, part of Adam's function was having regular meetings with God and saying, how are we doing? How are things going? So we see the sons of God coming together and having a meeting. And that, that would have been part of Adam's function. And it would, have been, it would have continued to be his function to this day. You know, here we are 6,000 years later. Adam would be up there telling God, what's, what's up? Not that God doesn't know, but God really loves our company, doesn't he? God knows everything. He absolutely knows everything. But he communicates in ways that we're used to, like asking questions. Like in the Garden of Eden when he said, Adam, where are you? <laughs> Do you guys really think he didn't know where Adam was? Or was he communicating with Adam in his way?
just like gathering together for a meeting. But something changed the original purpose of human beings. We found out through scripture what that originally was. Sin entered the world and dramatically changed everything. How did the entrance of sin change our purpose, though? How could the entrance of sin change our purpose? Aren't we still to, supposed to still do those things God gave us to do? Start families of our own? Subdue the earth? Have dominion over the animals? Dominion, in that sense, definitely just needs guidance. Animals look to us because in the way they can understand to us, in a way, we're, we represent God because in their understanding, we're the ones leading and guiding. So that's what God gave us to do. It's not to rule over them with an iron fist. I say that because a lot of people think of the Old Testament as God being very authoritative, you know. Here's these animals. You, you get to rule over them. <laughs> we kind of get image, images of history's great tyrants. That's not, that's not that at all. But how does sin change our purpose? You guys ever thought about that? Our purpose originally sounded really easy to handle, wouldn't you say? It's like, wow, that's all I got to handle? You and I are now so far from what life was like in Eden that it sounds very foreign to us. We don't even recognize it. If that was our only purpose, if that was our day-to-day -to, -day to wake up to, that's not something we recognize. The demands on us are much more now. But here's the, here's the interesting and the good news. I would propose to you that our purpose was changed when sin entered the world. We were repurposed. We were retasked, to borrow a phrase. No longer we, do we just be fruitful and multiply and rule over the plants and the animals and tend and care for the earth. Now we are God's agents in a revolted world. We are holding the line in God's great conflict. Channels of light, maybe? Now we are God's hands. This may sound strange to you, but to me it seems our purpose just got dramatically better. Now we have the opportunity to work for God in ways that Adam and Eve never could have. You guys ever think about that? Adam and Eve would have never had the opportunity to be a blessing in the way that we can be a blessing. Be a blessing, of course, they could, but not in the way we can. Until sin entered the world, there was just... We were just another beautiful spinning blue marble in God's great family, honored indeed because we are created by God. But when sin entered the world, our purpose dramatically changed. We are now on the front lines of a great battle, fighting for our God. We are the elect. We are the elite. You guys ever thought about that? The honor it is to be God's elect, fighting for God. Bear with me as we go in. You'll learn more. I'm not going to leave you there. Because we are fighting alongside Jesus in the salvation of this lost world. What an honor. Do you see what I mean when I say what an honor? No one else has that honor. Angels, the word angel means ministering spirit. Heaven is filled with angels, more than humans. And they work for Jesus in the saving of humans. But they still can't do what we can do. They are constrained by certain rules of engagement, you can see. And when you read through Scripture, you understand a little bit, it pulls back the curtain of the spiritual world, that God is constrained. His angels are constrained. You ever wonder why in Scripture, well, especially when Christ himself says it, he says, pray for this, pray for that. You ever wonder why he said that? You're God. You can do it. You can do whatever you want. Why do I need to be involved in this process at all? <laughs> what's, my, what's my role? What, you know? And again, having conversations with people who are atheistic or agnostic, they bring up some very interesting points for discussion. Not that it converts you to their way of thinking. You're like, oh, I never thought about it like that. Why does God need us to pray? You know? He's God. But again, if you read Scripture as a whole, it pulls back the curtain a little bit, and you can see that there are rules of engagement even for God, much in the way that he doesn't force your choice. Aren't you glad God doesn't force your choice? What a wonderful reality that we serve a God that won't force you to love him. Forced love. That's an oxymoron. We get to have the honor of being God's hands 
in lifting up the people around us. We get to bring hope to our fellow men. Channels of light. Our purpose is far grander than any other given to mortals or even to God's angels. Maybe in light of this awesome responsibility, we shrink back thinking we're unworthy because what I just described sounds like, oh, that's a big deal. It's scary. I liked it better when my purpose was just to, uh, you know, start a family <laughs> and take care of the earth. Much simpler. You might think I'm inadequate for this. And bear in mind, remember, we're talking about purpose. If we were to fulfill our purpose, if our purpose is to be that blessing that we just discovered we can be, you might think, oh, that's not for me. I, I can't do that. I can't do that. We've been studying in our class Isaiah, and Isaiah said it very well. God gave him a vision of himself, and Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone. He undoubtedly fell on his face. He said, I am undone. And of course, we should have that respect for God. If any of us came to an image of God like that, falling on our faces would absolutely be appropriate, not because we are worthless, but because he is God. That reverence, that awe, we can't even fathom it. But God didn't leave him on his face because Isaiah said, woe is me, for my, I am undone. I, I am a man of unclean lips. I live in a nation and a culture of unclean lips. He was condemned, self-condemned. In the awesome holy presence of God, he felt condemned. He realized where he stood, and God didn't leave him there. God sent an angel, and again, this is in vision, this is symbolic. He took a coal from the altar in heaven and touched Isaiah's lips, and he says, your sins are purged. And then, I love this scripture portrays it in this way, God asking another rhetorical question as if in vision Isaiah is seeing God, and God turns and says, who will we send for us? As if God's talking to some of his companions. And Isaiah says, pick me, I'm the one. Send me, I'll go. He was humble and unworthy, as we all are. But he wanted to help God because he loves God. Do you love God? Send me. If you're thinking that you're unworthy and inadequate, don't worry. I'll I'll, I won't keep you in suspense. You are. We all are. We are all absolutely unworthy and inadequate. Lord, you really want me on your team? That would kind of be like uh, Miami Heat asking me to play with them. I don't, I don't play basketball. <laughs> I'm short. I'm not very athletic. I, I don't play basketball. <laughs> or to take it even a step further, it's like us you know, elite team of soldiers for our U.S. government saying, hey, come lead the squad, John. No? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I can't do that. We sometimes have a very accurate estimation of our own skills or our own value, especially in those situations. No, I can't do that. You want me to do that? Can you believe God's entrusted us with these awesome responsibilities? Can you believe that? I think some of us deny that because you're like, that can't be. That can't, it can't be. It doesn't make any sense that you'd want me to help in the salvation of people. You'd want me to help be a blessing to people. That makes, that makes no sense. That can't be. I must have misread it. We often don't engage in God's work because we're painfully aware of how inadequate we are. I'm a sinner. I'm no good. What can I do? I'm just me. I'm just me. How many of you have ever said, that? I'm just me? God doesn't like it when we say that. He says, you're not just you. You're part of us. You're us. You know, we're told in Scripture, the saints will live and reign with Christ in heaven. That makes me uncomfortable. I have no right to be there doing that. Can I be the janitor, please? I'd mm -mm. But God doesn't leave us where we are. To illustrate that, Turn with me to John 6. Hey, I actually hear pages turning. Thank you. So many of you use your phones, and I'm glad you're still following along, but there's something magical to me about the turning of pages. This is the story that's very familiar to all of you guys. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And bear in mind that's somewhat of a misnomer. That's been mislabeled. It was feeding 5,000 men plus their families. Typically when they said things like that, especially in the Old Testament, they were just talking about men of military age. Did you guys know that? So 
whatever military age was back then. I would assume between 20 and 50, something like that. And there was 5,000 of those men. So imagine how many people were there that were either younger or older than that, or their wives, or so on and so forth. So realistically, I mean, you could argue with me if you wanted to, but there's probably 15, 20,000 people there. Isn't that interesting? And this happened twice in Christ's ministry, once feeding of the 3,000, once feeding of the 5,000. But again, both mislabeled a little bit. So John 6, we're going to read the beginning part of it. We're going to read through 1 through 14. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up the mountain. There he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? This is the part where I'd usually just start expounding on that, too, because it's so interesting. But again, I had to rein it in. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Bear in mind, whenever you read that word test in Scripture, God's not testing you like he thinks you're unworthy. That word is better translated as exercise. God was allowing, he was giving Philip the opportunity to exercise faith. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth is of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? You guys see where I'm going with this? What, what am I among so many? This is a passage of encouragement for sure. Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples then distributed them to those sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Do you see what meager fare was turned into by God? Do you guys pick up on that? Without the offering of that young man, what was there for God to bless and multiply? Well, here's a math question for you guys. What's zero times a thousand? It's still zero. But say you think, oh, I have very, very little. I have one. I have, n I have one. That's all I have. Other people have hundreds. But because I'm me, I'm just me, I have one. What's one times a thousand? It's a thousand. God is a multiplier. All throughout Scripture, God is a multiplier. So if you deprive from God what's his, how can he multiply it? Whatever, whatever it is you have to offer, albeit small perhaps, I think many of you have way more than you realize, but God is a multiplier. Notice how this young man, he brought to him... <laughs> I can't imagine what was going through his head other than love for God, love for Jesus, because if he thought about a logic, he'd be like, well, this is nothing. You know, I, I don't want to bring this to the great master. This would be an, an insult to him. Maybe he was thinking, maybe I'll just give it to Jesus so Jesus can at least eat. But look at what it turned into. What can I do? Do we really think we have less to offer than that young man? This is where we realize that that thought, that feeling, that emotion in us is a deception. Don't be discouraged. Discouragement is a ploy. It's a tactic of the devil. Don't believe his lies. We could go into a whole other message about how Satan tempts you and takes you and leads you into sin and then leaves you there. So why would you believe someone like that? Why do any of us believe it? How dare we believe that? Don't believe it. Don't believe that God can't use you. Satan is a master strategist, and that's a powerful strategy. It works here on earth. You know how easy it is to discourage someone, an individual? I could probably walk up to any one of you and discourage you if I wanted to. You could do the same to me. Why would I want to? It's powerful. Words are very powerful. That strategy 
of discouragement is used world over by all the world's armed forces. Do you guys know that? Powerfully and in ways, I won't talk about it now, it's very unpleasant, but you understand what I mean. Demoralizing an entire army. That's how you win. You can win against superior numbers if you do that. What if our troops, <laughs> when fighting for America overseas, fighting an enemy, the enemy came up over a loudspeaker and said, you guys are worthless. You can't do this. You sure aren't very good at this. <laughs> you should just go home. What if they listened? Oh, you have a good point. What if they listened? You know what they say, bravery isn't the, isn't the absence of fear. It's acting in the face of it. Do you know how valuable you are? Don't ever say that you're just you. You're not just you. Jesus Christ, our creator, he created us with his hands. And then when we made big mistakes, he died for us to save us and bring us back. He died for you. Understand that and take that to your heart in the way that makes you realize what your value is. You might think you're worthless. Society might tell you you're worthless. Your people around you. We live in an age of people being very unkind to each other. Wouldn't you agree? But you're not worthless. You're not worthless. Our estimation of worth has been greatly flawed. We can really only see what we're worth when you see what God paid for you. So now that we've established that you do belong on this team, what's your place on it? This might be another point that's discouraging you. Okay, God, you want me on your team, but what do I do? I'm not a great evangelist. I'm not a doctor, right? Probably no one in this room is a great evangelist and doctor. Maybe. I don't know all of you. If you are, that's really cool. But you might think, these great men that I would supposedly mimic, I can't do what they can do. Don't be discouraged. Perhaps when I say channels of light, you envision that you must move to a third world country maybe. You leave your family and your job and everything that makes, makes life comfortable and you go all in, right? If you've grown up in this church, you've grown up reading stories about missionaries who have done just that. They've brought light to the darkest corners of the world. Maybe when I bring up the issue of purpose and us being and us living, us working for God, that's what you think. If God calls you to do that, then yes, very much so. But God might not be calling you personally to do that. Did you ever think of that? Maybe you're being too hard on yourself. You're thinking, since I can't do that, I'll do nothing. Again, a strategy of discouragement. That's wrong. Let me illustrate. We were talking about channels of light, right? You guys know what fiber optic cables are? That's that new technology that's replacing the old cable that you'd plug into the back of your TV. You'd screw it in with your fingers. That's replacing that. That old cable used low voltage to communicate. The new fiber optic cables, they'll sometimes call it a trunk line going into your neighborhood, is a bundle of fibers that no longer carry electricity but light. And then the color, the pulse, the pattern, that communicates. That's what's bringing you your football game in Ultra HD now. Not that long ago, my neighborhood got fiber to my neighborhood, and, and I was surprised because I was talking with my uncle down the street, and I said, hey, my uh, Comcast is really fast. I think I get 100 megabit. And he said, that's cute. The new fiber is 1,000 megabit. <laughs> so it's, it's very powerful. But what I'm trying to illustrate is, do they only run fiber optic cable to third world countries? No. They run it everywhere. They run it absolutely everywhere. Do you know why? All of us humans need it. Well, not maybe need's not a good word, but we need light. Anywhere where there's structure, there's infrastructure, we need this. Whether you're in Austria, Australia, you're in Bali, it doesn't matter. It's bringing it everywhere. Maybe you are a channel of light into your neighborhood. Do you ever think about that? Maybe you're that trunk line. Maybe you're the reason my uncle's getting such good internet speed. 
So don't think that because you don't envision yourself as participating in this grand purpose that you're not helping. But what can you do? I'm going to have you turn with me to Luke 8, to another familiar story. Luke 8, 26. And I love the way Luke tells this story. Luke was a physician, and so he writes things in a certain way. You can tell he was a very particular man. 8, 26. Luke 8, 26. We're going to read a few passages together. If I could find it. Then they sailed to the country of the Garden Gardenses. Gardenses. Yeah, he says it a little bit differently. So I can, I guess, butcher it however I want. Which is opposite of Galilee. And when he stepped out on land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Let me stop there for a moment, and let's dive into this picture a little bit more. This story has always amazed me, and it's probably has to be my favorite story in the Bible. And again, I could have done a 10-part series just on this because it is so rich with lesson for us. It really happened, but it's also an analog for you and I. Do you realize this is exactly the condition Satan wants to lead all of us into? This is a microcosm of God's plan for you and Satan's plan for you set side by side. A lot of us don't see it in such extreme measures because how often do you run into someone like this but this is truly what satan wants he tempted eve he tempted adam to give up their place in god's creation to give up their purpose and they rolled the dice that what he was telling them was true and they might get a better place and a better purpose do you understand that he lied to them he lied to them it is satan's device to lead us into sin via lies because he can't tell the truth and get you to sin. He leads us into sin via lies and then he leaves us there like this guy. Beyond hope with only feelings of fear towards the future. So as you can see in this story, what I'm seeing is a man still dimly in there somewhere, although he was controlled by demons, a legion of demons. The other gospels bear that out. He was still in there a little bit. And when he saw Christ, he said, he thought to himself, he dare not think it out loud because the demons would hear him and stop him. He thought to himself, maybe Christ can help. I think he can help. And he ran up to him to say, Jesus, help me. But the demons put other words in his lips, which is, what, what do you have to do with me? Don't torment me. Leave me alone. When those words were uttered, that man must have given up that last shred of hope that he was going to be saved. But Jesus knew what was going on. Then Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And the man said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Again, a very interesting point, but we don't have time for that. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountains, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter the pigs. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Again, very interesting, packed, packed with information and revelation, but we can't unpack all of that. But it, what continues to happen is very interesting. Then they who fed them saw what had happened. They fled and told it to the city and the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So can you imagine the change that had taken place? These herdsmen and everyone in that, that area knew you stay away from here because of this guy. It was almost like one of the superhero movies that is everywhere right now. This guy was, had supernatural power because he was filled with demons. The chains couldn't even hold him. So he was a scourge on this area. You don't go over there. 
And actually, the other Gospels bear it out. There was two of them, but obviously one took a backwards, a back seat, so Luke didn't really notice him. But he was a scourge there. So imagine now you come up and you see him sitting at the feet of Jesus, someone you've heard about but you've never met, and you're like, how can this be? Jesus, no doubt, probably led him into the water and washed him, washed all the blood off him, probably gave him a hair tie, pulled that matted mess back and, you know, make him look more human. And now that glint of insanity is gone. And you can see the intelligence in his eyes. And this is what they come up and see. And yet they're still afraid. In verse 36, they also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the garden seas asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear and he got into the boat and returned. We're almost done. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him. He begged Christ that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house until what great things God has done for you. I'm guessing you guys know where I'm going with this, right? Did anybody in scripture have anything less to offer God? He had nothing. This guy had never met Jesus. He had never laid eyes on him. He was in an area where they didn't know scripture, so he probably didn't know scripture. He had nothing to offer God. I don't know theology. I can't help God. I felt like that for the longest time. I still feel inadequate to be able to even do something like this, but I have to because I love God and I can't not tell you what I've found out about God. But he, he wanted to go with Jesus. Can you, can you relate to that emotion? I, we can't even comprehend what he had been through. But to a tiny degree, we can and go, wow, what a relief. I'd want to be with Jesus too. I'd never want to leave his side ever again. But imagine the disappointment of Jesus says, no, stay here. What? I want to be with you. Like, no, I need you to go now work for me. There are other people out there suffering as well. The love for God awakens love for our fellow man in us. Oh, I don't want other people to have to suffer like I was suffering. Let me go help. Channels of light, right? They didn't know much, but they did know what Jesus had done for them, and that they can share, and that's something each of us can share. If you don't have a story to share about Jesus and what he's done for you, that might not mean, that might mean that you need to dig deeper. Because if you're here at all, you've met God at least a little bit. And to know God is to love God, amen? So if you think your conversion story is not exciting <laughs> or not a big deal like some dramatic conversion stories you've heard, don't dismay. That's not the common occurrence for it to be this explosion of a conversion. It's usually God working on you for a lifetime. And then one day, because we're humans and we're not very bright, we get it. <laughs> That's my conversion story. <laughs> That's my conversion story. One day, all of a sudden, the chips just finally outweighed on one end, and I got it. I'm like, oh, wow. Wow. Praise God. <laughs> but it wasn't dramatic. It wasn't exciting in the way that you might think. Not like this man. But I love God, and I can tell you that. I can talk about some scripture with you because I love God, so I'm in scripture, and I can share with you things I've learned. But every time I open scripture, I realize how much I don't know. But that is not going to discourage me from sharing with you what I do know of God. Pick up what Jesus said there in verse 39. Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. Right? Channels of light the meaning of life, the purpose. What is your purpose? What purpose did Christ give these, these two guys? Or this one guy, according to this story? What purpose was that? Do we really think that we're worse off than them or have less to offer? I would hope not. I want to remind you, again, of your value to God. You're not valued to God for what you can do or what you can perform. You're valuable to God because you're His your lot in life might be very, very humble, you might think. Or maybe your peers think that, maybe. But before God, you are a son of the king. Don't you see that? What you can do? You may not be able to speak multiple languages or quote scripture. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. You can be a blessing. I think there's a big misconception sometimes that in order to be a blessing for God, that these are the things we need to do. 
Some people are called to do great things. I can't deny that. And God wants everybody engaged in his service to help our fellow men. But I think where we go wrong is what we think helping our fellow man is sometimes. See, I, I grew up in a church where the love of God wasn't really there. Not very much. I went to church every week. I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home. My parents loved God. But it was a prevailing attitude at that time and in that area that we need to, we're obligated to serve God. We're obligated to do these things. You better not mess up. It's Sabbath. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't go to the movies. You can't do this or we'll, we'll upset God. That was the attitude. I didn't see the love of God in my church at all. I saw the love of God in my parents. The love of God, although it's coming through fragile humans, can still come through regardless, absolutely regardless. And praise God that my parents, they were hippies in the 60s, and they both came together, they met each other, and about a year later they met God, and they got converted together. And then 20 years later, no, 10 years later I was born. I'm, I'm number four. <laughs> so that's the background we're coming from. So they experienced what the world was like. They had their Romspringer. But thank God that they loved God and they showed me that love. Uh, and so at times imperfectly because we're human. But in our church, I think we all think there's kind of this thought that we need to, oh, I see, I see someone in need. You should love God. Here, read the Bible. <laughs> You're doing something wrong. Oh, you shouldn't be drinking. Here, read the Bible. I'm going to save you. And you go around thumping people with your Bible. The gospel of Christ was one of meeting humans where they were at and blessing them in any way he possibly could. And that usually took the form of healing them. Usually. Usually it did. He would go in one side of a village. A couple days later, he'd exit the other side, and there wasn't a single sick person in there. And Scripture doesn't mention how many converts there were. Maybe there were none. I'm not saying that salvation isn't important and knowing God is not, is not important. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm talking about being a practical blessing to the people around you. Being a practical blessing in any way you can. If you read scripture at all, even the Old Testament, who some people seem to think there's not a lot of gospel in there, God was constantly commanding the nation of Israel how to treat people who were in need. Why did he have to tell them that? Because naturally we don't get it. It doesn't come naturally to us to, to be a servant, to, to serve other people, to be a blessing, to lift someone up. The story of the Good Samaritan. This guy was a Samaritan. He wasn't a Jew, but he loved God, and therefore he loved his fellow man, and he just saw a person struggling. He didn't ask whether he was a Jew or a Greek or an Asian or a Mexican or whatever. It doesn't matter. He saw a human that was hurting, and he helped him. Do you, did you read the part in the uh, Good Samaritan where he gave him a Bible study? And again, I don't want you to misunderstand. But the Bible is very, very important. Leading people to Jesus is very, very important, yes. But meeting people where they practically need help. They, they need help. Beating them up with your Bible in that moment is not going to help them. Does that make sense? That's not what Jesus would have done. Jesus lift pe lifted people up, and then he said, go and sin no more. I love the story of when uh, Mary Magdalene's brought before him in the temple. That story usually brings me to tears just because you get it. You see it. You see it vividly in your mind, this, this terror-stricken woman dragged before him, caught in adultery. She knew what she had done was wrong, and she knew she justly deserved punishment. She's surrounded by angry men of authority. Throw her in front of Jesus. Say, what do we do? Moses said she should be killed. And that hearing that came to her as a death sentence. She's like, I'm done. I'm absolutely done. But you guys all remember exactly what Jesus did. We could read it again, but I've already kept you too long, I think. But he said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. There is a condemnation of sinners, but Christ came to save the sinners. He works desperately to save all of us and to bless all of us. First, if we make the choice not to, then there's condemnation. But you know what? Jesus healed people left and right, which was an object lesson of how he heals us of the corruption of sin, too. The same voice that spoke to Lazarus saying, come forth, a body that had been dead for four days, animates us and brings us spiritually to life. He gives us his spirit. We become like him to be just like him. So next time you're thinking, 
I'm not good enough or I don't have enough strength or I'm not, I have nothing to offer. That's not true. Jesus was always going around lifting people up. I bet you, I can't give you a number, but I bet a lot of the people Jesus healed of a malady were very, very grateful, but went on to probably just live their own lives and not accept him as a savior. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus just wanted to help them. Their choice of salvation is theirs, but he still saw a suffering human being and helped. I think you understand what I'm trying to get across. Let me leave you with this. Because again, we're humans and we're very stubborn. Our heads are about this thick. You are very valuable. And you are necessary. You can reach and touch and heal and love people that, uh, that no one else can, perhaps. Your sphere of influence is very unique to you. That's how we share the love of God, is by loving people. And of course, loving them means we warn them off a dangerous ground, we introduce them to God and right doing, of course. But before that comes meeting their practical needs and being for them, being there for them. You know, our suicide rates in our country are higher than ever before. How many of those people would still be alive if, if someone had opted to be there for them in loving kindness and lifted them up, giving them words of encouragement? Do you think you guys can give words of encouragement? I think you can. You might not be bilingual. You might not be have this or that doctorate attached to your name, but you can give words of encouragement, right? You can be kind. You can lift someone up. We all can see when people are hurting. Show up. So again, I'm reminding you that you're valuable. I'm reminding you of your purpose. And let me close with this. Let me leave you with this. But as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God's will that you fulfill your purpose of being a blessing. And if it's God's will, it will happen. He will give you the power. He will give you the strength. And again, we've all realized just now, we don't need to be Superman to be a blessing. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you guys believe that? In his strength, show up. Show up. Show up and be a channel of light. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm overwhelmed when I think of what should I possibly say to you? What should I thank you for? My head starts spinning. Heavenly Father, I just want you to know how much we appreciate this boundless love you've shown for us, both by creation and redemption. We are hum humble instruments, and we know that. But we're going to show up, and we're going to say, what can I do to help? Give us strength, please. Give us wisdom. Fill our hearts with love for our fellow men. Help us to see people how you see them. You showed up, and all you did was help, and you're still helping. Please give us the strength and the wisdom every day to recognize and improve upon those opportunities to be a blessing to someone. And by your grace and strength, we can lead them to you so that they might get to know you for themselves and fall in love with you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.